This is recording number 10807 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the eighth message in the outpouring series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, March 15, 2009. This message is titled, Paradigm Shift. Chapter 9, Book of Acts. Now we're going to pick up where we left off last week and, and we were talking about um, the outbreak of some serious persecution that came upon the church in Jerusalem. Remember at the beginning of the Book of Acts, we have the words of Jesus recorded for us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that give us the outline for the whole book. You shall receive power. He's talking to his followers. You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, last week we talked about a persecution that was unleashed on the church in the aftermath of Stephen's martyrdom. And it says there that the church went everywhere. They were dispersed. They were running for their lives. But at the same time, they were fulfilling their assignment to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we read about last week, um, Philip uh, taking the gospel to the Samaritans. Now today, and we were introduced, you remember, to Saul, Saul from Tarsus. The, this persecution broke out um, because of uh, the testimony of Stephen and at his stoning when the religious leaders were um, inflicting capital punishment upon him, Saul was there kind of overseeing things and they laid their coats at his feet. Those who were even the boulders, they were laying uh, their garments at his feet. And that was our first introduction to Saul. I said, remember that name because he's going to become uh, the prominent figure through the rest of the the book of Acts. And so we're going to pick up with Saul's story today. Verse 1, chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, and that was uh, what they used to describe the followers of Christ in those days. They weren't called Christians or little Christ is what that means. They weren't, they weren't uh, described that way. They were described as followers of the way. And so he's asking the high priest in Jerusalem for letters of authority so that he could follow these believers as they were being scattered through the persecution to other parts of the region. He wanted to, he was hot on their tails. It says he was still breathing threats. Saul was so ardent about his commitment to stamp out this, you know, this thing this, that was getting away from them, this, this group of people who were following uh, this man, Jesus. And he was... Um, pursuing them wherever they went and he wanted authority to be, to be able to follow them all the way to Damascus and Syria and if he found any believers even there he wanted to be able to haul them back to Jerusalem uh, to be uh, uh, tried and punished. So he says uh, 
verse 2, and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now that might get your attention. <laughs> You're minding your own business, hot and heavy in pursuit of uh, believers and all of a sudden, you know, it's not like the... the, the um, Clouds part and the rays of sun shine down as we might imagine. It's something much more powerful than that because it knocks him to the, to the ground and blinds him. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Those words are in red in my Bible because uh, my Bible uh, uses red ink whenever it's the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to him. The resurrected Christ is speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a long stick with a point on the end of it that was used to prod, you know, um, beasts of burden in the direction you wanted them to go. If you were guiding an ox uh, team or something like that, you had this long stick and you poked them and you got them going where you want them to go. And Jesus is saying, uh, Saul, why are you bugging my people? You know, you're, you're really going the wrong way. It's hard for you to kick against the goad. I'm trying to get your attention, buddy. And you're fighting me all the way. What's up with that? So he trembling and astonished, verse 6 says, said, Lord. Now this is a different, you can almost hear the change in tone. First time around when he says the word Lord, he says, he says, who are you, Lord? Then verse 6, Lord. What do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now Saul is blinded. We, if you went on and read, you'd see that he's blinded by this experience. He can't see anything. He has to be led by his, his entourage into the city of Damascus. And it says he's, that he's there for three days. He doesn't eat or drink. The guy is just trying to recover from this um, life-changing experience he's had out there on the road to Damascus. Verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, <clears throat> the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias, who knows what he's up to. He's, he's probably in Damascus because he has fled Jerusalem trying to get away from the persecution. And you're going to find out that he's heard about Saul. And he may be just hiding out in his room, hoping that Saul doesn't find him. Who, we, do, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that God begins to speak to him. Jesus begins to speak to him. And uh, <clears throat> we'll pick it up at verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. These are very specific instructions. What street he's to go to, which house on that street, and who to ask for. And where the guy he's supposed to ask for is originally from. This is all very, very specific information that's being given to him. <clears throat> 
And in a vision he has seen, he goes on, the Lord continues speaking to Ananias. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you by the way, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, um, Lord, I, I have heard uh, from many about this guy. Uh, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And um, here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. I want to stop right there. There's much more to be said about this. Um, the Lord continues to give Ananias some instructions. Ananias goes, uh, relents. And you can imagine, this has got to be very scary for Ananias. Uh, he, you know, he's just going on what he feels like the Lord is telling him. But he's putting his life in jeopardy. But he does it. And he prays for Saul. Saul's blindness is relieved. It's like, it says it's almost like scales fell from his eyes. And he was able to see. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Goes on to talk about how uh, Saul has had this incredible, and by the way, Saul will become Paul, uh, who we're going to hear a lot about in the rest of the, of the book of Acts, and who wrote most of the epistles, the little book, books in the back of the New Testament, letters to the churches. Paul wrote most of those. Very important um, figure in the early church. But uh, he's had this powerful experience with the Lord and he begins to preach and, and he's got a powerful testimony because the guy is a Pharisee. He is the Jewish Jew. He is the Hebrew of the Hebrews, he will say at one point in his life. I'm, I, am, I am the guy. But he has come to faith in Christ by this dramatic conversion and he preaches and many people are responding. Eventually, we don't read about it here in this chapter, but in one of Paul's epistles in Galatians, he talks about how right after these events he went to arabia to the desert and hung out there for quite a while just letting god teach him and retrain his thinking about you know all the things that he's been programmed to believe and uh but then he eventually makes his way to jerusalem and you can imagine what that was like he showed up in jerusalem and he wants to hang out with the uh, apostles and the other disciples that are in jerusalem and they're going uh-uh uh-uh and then, remember we met a guy a few weeks ago uh, named Barnabas? Barnabas, I told you, remember that name because he's going to become important too. Barnabas, who was nicknamed, he, he was given that name Barnabas by the, the apostles, uh, which means um, son of encouragement. Barnabas is a real special guy. We first encounter him when he sells uh, everything that he has and, and gives it to the people who are in need, the believers who are in need. And uh, so Barnabas comes to Saul's aid and he goes before the apostles and he says, look, let's give this guy a chance. He's really encountered Jesus in a powerful way and his life has been changed. And so they, on the basis of Barnabas being willing to step in and, and put his reputation on the line, they embrace um, Paul and on it goes. But I stopped you there when the Lord was speaking to Ananias and says to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles because this is an important, powerful transition point in the Bible and in human history. Not as important as the cross, certainly, but a very important thing. The people of God undergo a paradigm shift. 
You know what a paradigm shift is? That's when you suddenly are, are challenged to think differently about something. To this point, the believers are all Jews. And they think of the church as Jewish. That's their mindset. That's the paradigm that they have about what it means to be a Christian. However, thousands of years before, when God called Abraham the father of the Jews, the father of the Hebrews, out of, the, uh, out of his homeland to the land of, of promise, his, he, what he promised to Abraham was, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son through your seed, through your progeny, I'm going to bless the whole world. My intention is not just for this to be about you, Abraham, and your family. I'm starting with you, but the rippling effects are to embrace all of the world. This is about everyone. And for all of this time, pretty much, that has gotten uh, kind of lost in the shuffle. But now... Jesus is making a point. I've called Saul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, that must have hit Ananias uh, like a ton of bricks. And it certainly is going to uh, change the, the trajectory of the gospel. But that's what Jesus meant when he said, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea. Those are still Jewish counties. Samaria, they're half-breeds, but they're, they're related still to the uttermost part of the earth. So we're going to leave Paul's story right now, and we'll pick it up next week. But know this, God is up to something very, very important. And we're going to see it now carried on in Peter's life. So chapter 10. Chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. This is a, a Roman soldier. He's in charge of a hundred men from a renowned regiment. But, verse 2 says, says, he's a devout man and one who feared God. Somewhere along the line, his heart has become... Um, inclined toward the God of the Hebrews and he's hungry for we're going to see that he's hungry for a relationship with this God uh, and he gave alms or contributed generously to the people and prayed to God always now about the ninth hour of the day that's three o'clock in the afternoon he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him Cornelius and when he observed him he was afraid and said what is it Lord so he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner. That's another Simon whose house is by the sea. And he will tell you what you must do again. Notice the specificity with that is coming to these people when God speaks to them. So he gets he tells them. he says, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. He wants to respond to this hunger that you have for him. Here's what you got to do. Send men uh, to uh, the city of Joppa, to the house of Simon, who's a tanner. That means he, he deals in leather goods. 
and the processing of leather, you're going to find a guy there named um, Simon Peter. And he, bring him here. He'll tell you what to do. Now, verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, the people that, that uh, Cornelius is sending, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So that's um, noon. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. So kind of like a, an inverted, uh, uh, like a parachute, you know, coming down uh, out of heaven. He sees this thing. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, stuff that Jewish people don't eat. Okay? It's off limits. It's not kosher. And a voice came to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. He thinks it's a test. No, no, Lord, I will never do that. I'm a good Jewish boy. I'm not going to eat that stuff. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this uh, vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So they're following these instructions that the angel had given to Cornelius and they are at, they find their way at Simon the Tanner's house while Peter is considering this vision. He's puzzling over what he's seen and heard. While Peter thought, excuse me, verse 18, and they uh, called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. So he hears uh, from um, The Holy Spirit, he hears, there's guys looking for you. Simon the Tanner downstairs, who's actually opening the door to the centurion's uh, messengers, hasn't yet called up to Simon Peter on the roof and said, Hey, there's some guys here to see you. That hasn't happened yet. Peter hears it from the Holy Spirit. Peter, as he's sitting there pondering all these things that he's seen and heard, Peter hears in his heart by the Holy Spirit that there's some people looking for you. Take note of that. Verse 20, Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Verse 23, Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied uh, him. And they went to Cornelius' house. And when they got to Cornelius' house, they found that Cornelius, Cornelius and his household and his um, you know, everybody that was associated with him were all just sitting there waiting because the angel had said, Cornelius, when you bring this guy, Peter, to you, he'll answer your, your questions. He'll tell you what to do next. So they're all just waiting for what Peter's going to say. Peter comes in and this is very, 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 very hard for Peter to go into a Gentile's house. And not only that, a Roman centurion's house was the hardest thing Peter has probably ever done in his whole stinking life. Pardon me, he didn't have a stinking life. (laughs) In his whole life. But he goes in, and he sees all these people. He doesn't know what to expect. He sees all these people there, and he's probably wondering what you'd be wondering. Well, what am I supposed to say? 
But he opens his mouth and he just starts telling them about the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says that, that they responded with faith and they were filled with the Holy Spirit just as the apostles had been and other disciples had been on the day of Pentecost. And the people that had come with the Jewish people who had come with Peter from Joppa are watching this and their jaws are dropping to the floor and they don't know what to think. Suddenly, the gospel is leaping the Jewish boundary. And people who are not circumcised are being saved. Paradigm shift. But the God in heaven who intended that all along is rejoicing. But I want to talk to you, though, about what we see in chapter 11, verse 1. You thought I was actually preaching right now. No, this is just introduction. (laughs) Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So all of the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem, they get word of what Peter's done. Okay, they've heard that the Gentiles have received the gospel. Verse 2. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And Peter then begins to tell them the whole story, uh, you know, detail by detail. Verse 18 will conclude there. When they heard these things, they became silent. They, they couldn't, first of all, you got to see, they're upset. They are very upset that, that Peter is venturing into uncharted territory here. It's breaking their paradigm, and they're upset about it. But as Peter describes how God set this up, and how God honored the preaching of the gospel with faith in the hearts of these uncircumcised men. Verse 18 says, when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. The center of gravity is now going to shift from this point forward from Jerusalem to the Gentile world. It's a, I can't emphasize it enough, what happens here. But the reason that I, I want to... There's so much we could talk about in these verses, but the reason I want to point this out is because I believe that all of us periodically need a paradigm shift. So if you'll give me your attention for just a little bit longer, I'm going to focus in on that. Because remember, some of you will remember, um, that Jesus... Uh, it's recorded for us back in Luke chapter 5. Jesus was... At the house of Matthew. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. He was persona non grata. You know, he was, he was the IRS agent. Nobody liked him. But Jesus met him on the road at his little tax collecting booth, and he was converted. And the first thing Matthew did is he thought, you know, i got to share this with people. Now, the only people Peter knows are the scumbags of the earth, but they still need to hear it, right? So he gets all of his sinning buddies, his fellow tax collectors, and... Uh, all of them together for a party and invites Jesus and the disciples over hoping that, you know, the mix is going to cause something uh, important to happen. Now, the, the Pharisees and scribes who seem to be always following Jesus around are no, taking notice of this and they get his disciples alone uh, a little bit later and they said, why is it that your, your uh, teacher, 
Why is it that he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And you remember what Jesus said? He, heard, he overheard the conversation. He comes and he said, I'm hanging out with tax collectors and sinners because they need the gospel. I didn't come for the well. You who think you're so high and mighty and, and well, I didn't come for you. I came for the sick. That's what Jesus said. So think about the mindset of the Pharisee that you, know, you wouldn't hang out with people who are actually sinners. You wouldn't do that. No, 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 no. We're all holy and sanctified over here. And this is where we, this is how we conceive of the family of God. Those, those are the them. It's us, not them, us. Now, 10 years later, we're in Acts chapter 11. And those same disciples who were there and heard Jesus say these things. They've got the same us versus them mentality. Peter, you went to Gentiles and ate with them? How was it that in a period of 10 years, the disciples have gone from the cutting edge of the advance of the gospel to being Pharisees? Because it happens that fast. All of us. We talked about this a few weeks ago. All of us have a little Pharisee hanging out inside who wants to break loose. And pollute our relationship with God. And so that's why I said we periodically need a paradigm shift. Give me just a few minutes, as I said, to talk to you a little bit more about this. Because I believe that God has called each of us to represent him within the circles of our influence. There are people who God has arranged to be in your orbit they may be neighbors. They may be people you work with. They may be, um, I'll talk a little bit more about that, but you get the picture. There are people that are in the orbit of your life on purpose. They're the people God loves and wants to be part of his family and know the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that you've come to know. And he's trusting you with them. But how many of us, uh, don't even see them because they're the them. It doesn't take very long after we come to faith in Christ before we get really preoccupied with the us. It just happens. I've been a, a you know, pastor for over 25 years. I, it's something I wrestle with all the time because not just in my personal life, but in the people I care for, because it just happens. We start to focus on us. Oh, how great it is just to be with the us. But there's them. And the problem is, we need to break down the, the, even the definition of us and them. It just needs to be people God loves. People Jesus is concerned about. How did Peter escape that? That's what I want to know. And I think that the Lord uh, would point out four ways to us that Peter got beyond. <laughs> The Pharisaism that was already overtaking his fellow apostles. Number one, Peter began to see people differently. He's on the roof. God is showing him this vision of this sheet full of uh, animals that are not kosher. Peter's first response is them. That's them. And the Lord says, Peter, don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. Don't call common. What I have cleansed. 
And Peter is forced. He's sitting there thinking after this thing happens three times. He's sitting there thinking and pondering about this because it's challenging him to see people differently. Challenging to see people differently. And I believe that this whole thing starts with identifying the people in the circle of your influence. But let me just describe what the circle of influence is. First, your family. That's my family up there, minus, uh, you can see my daughter's big belly there. We're missing one person. Uh, and we celebrate his, his one-year uh, birthday uh, next week, little Nolan. But he didn't make the photograph. Um, friends and neighbors. Um, business and school associates. And people who are frequent contacts. Did you take that? People who, you know, you see on a regular basis, like the Starbucks barista in the picture. The guy at the gas station, the, the clerk at the grocery store, uh, the person at the dry cleaners, you know, that you, you have interactions with, but, but really don't even pay attention to. This really got a hold of me one time when I was... Um, I would stop for gas at the same gas station every, every couple of days, either to fill up uh, on my way to work or to uh, you know, buy a, a breakfast muffin or something like that. Every day the same guy was there behind the counter, but I had never, ever even considered or noticed him until one day. It, and I am very thick-headed. Sometimes it takes the Lord really roughing me up before I get the, the point. And I'm standing in line waiting to give the guy my money. And it was like the Lord hit me in the head with a baseball bat. And he said, that guy sitting right there is somebody I died for. Would you please pay attention to him? Okay. So I got up to the counter and I I gave him my money. And I said, my name is Randy. What's yours? Probably the first time anybody had ever asked him that. And I reached my hand across the counter. Now, he's probably, you know, it's early in the morning. He's probably a little bit fearful of what may happen. But he reached out and got my hand. I shook it, got his name. And uh, I, I felt like the Lord was asking me to begin to pray for him. So I did. I, I prayed for him every day until he moved on to another job at another point. Now, we never had very much conversation between us. But that guy, I I waged a campaign in prayer for his soul every single day for many, many months. God knows what the outcome and ultimate fruit of that will be. That's not my business. My business was to care about that guy. So Peter began to see people uh, differently. And I want to invite you to consider identifying those he has assigned you. Who are they? Where are they? Who are the people that you haven't been paying attention to? That God has placed in the circle of your influence on purpose. I guarantee you they're there. And when you identify them, when you recognize them, there's an amazing thing that starts to happen. Would be if, if you'll take it to the next step and bring them before God in intercessory prayer. If you'll find some way just to get your heart connected with them in the realm of the spirit. What I do is I, and I, you don't have to do it this way. I'm not, I'm not even suggesting now. What I do is I, I add them to a list. I try to keep at least a list of at least five people uh, that I'm praying for frequently, like every two, three days out of this circle of influence. To be truth be told, over the years, my list has grown very long, but I try to keep it at least to five people. 
because people come in and out of your circle of influence, but, but, but making note of them and then beginning to pray for them, something remarkable happens. You begin to care about them and you begin to wonder what their life is like. And you begin to, to consider, well, maybe they have hopes and dreams and maybe they have struggles and concerns. Maybe there's things that um, God is after trying to uh, answer in their lives. And, and could he use me? Perhaps you just open up to them in a different way. And Peter, when he's, uh, let me back up for a minute. I'll put that up there, but, but let me, part, let me uh, go back to that uh, second point. Peter's up on the roof, right? He's had this vision. He's, he's being challenged to see people differently. And while he's in a state of prayer and meditation and thinking about, you know, these people that he's supposed to see differently, it's in that environment that the Holy Spirit nudges his heart to say, you know, they're, they're knocking on the door for you. And, and this amazing thing happens when you begin to prayerfully consider the people in the circle of your influence. You begin to be attuned to the knock. Because I guarantee you, the vast majority of those people, they're knocking on the door. They don't know what it is they need. They just know they need something and they're knocking on the door. And when you begin to make them a part of your prayer life, you become attuned to that knocking and you become more sensitive to the doors that open for your testimony. So anyway, then the next thing that we see happening with Peter is that he includes them in his life. He goes with them. As challenging a thing as that was, he went with them to a Gentile's house. Now, uh, there is great power in just reaching out and making connections with people who are in the circle of your life's influence who don't yet know the Lord. Just simple things of just trying to be in the same place with them on a regular basis. I put my little Starbucks guys up there because I have been, uh, I have been um, sensing the Lord over, over at least a year that he wanted me to be, become... Um, engaged with these people that I see, hate to admit it, nearly every day. <laughs> so I started trying to come in at different times of the day so that I would meet different, um, you know, that I could be there during different shifts and meet different uh, uh, baristas or different partners so that I could become acquainted with everybody who mans that store. And I, and I, I am. I have their names now because I... I, I've made an effort to try to get to know them some. Now, it's hard when you come to the cash readers and line out the door to have any sort of meaningful conversation with the people. But I, I try. I try to engage them just in a brief moment of conversation. What they don't know is that every other day I'm praying for them by name before God. There's much more at stake than they know about. But it already is having readout in their lives. Just including, just be, being with them. We had a neighbor one time that, or a couple of streets over that my, uh, we were connected to by friendship with my, my son, had, uh, their, was a friend with their son. And one day, Sue and I were out for a walk, and um, the kid's father was outside watering the grass, and we just stopped and struck up a conversation and invited them to go with us for ice cream. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about here. It doesn't have to be, you know, any sort of abnormal, weird kind of, Deal, just the natural flow of life, connecting with people because the closer they get to you, 
the closer they're going to come to Jesus because Jesus lives in you if you are a follower of Christ. So just making yourself available makes a huge, huge difference. I, um, since I already got on this story, I'll, I'll just finish it up I, I, with my Starbucks crew. I made a trip to Taiwan, which I do frequently, and I was going to be gone for a week. I would be noticed if I wasn't there for a week. <laughs> so I, I arranged while I was gone to have a balloon bouquet sent to the store. I just told them, look, I, I'm not going to be here for a week. I will be missing your fabulous service. I just wanted you to know, Randy. Uh, another time I sent them a card, one of those you know, cards that you open up and plays music, some silly song. I don't know what it was. I sent them a card to the partners, and I just told them, look, you, know, you guys make a difference in my day. Every, you know, every day you, you smile, you remember my name, you, you know, things like that. And it, it sat on the counter there in that store for, for weeks until the battery was gone. It wouldn't play that silly <laughs> song anymore. But it made me, it gave me a connection with them. And I, I am, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not looking to, you know, make notches on my belt, you know, of people I've won to Christ. These relationships are not, uh, they're, they're genuine, they're real. Because I pray for them and my heart has been inclined to them. I want them. I'm concerned about them for the kingdom. So include them in your life. Seek ways to be with them and build genuine friendships. The better they get to know you, the more of him they'll see. And then the final thing we see in Peter's uh, experience here that caused him to be able to trans, trans, uh, still can't get the trans word, to (laughs) get beyond the Phariseeism was uh, to invite them to begin a relationship with Jesus. There's going to be a point, a time along this progression when the most natural thing in the world will be to be able to tell them about the one you love, the one who has forgiven your sins, the one who has given you eternal life. I'll tell you one more story, and then we're going to go home. Um, I started, uh, when, I, um, when we were pioneering our church uh, in San Jose that we pastored uh, before coming here, I was working part-time for a big company there, uh, to uh, supplement our income while the church was being established. And uh, I, I started to implement what, I'm, what I have on the screen here with you. And I took seriously this thing about circle of influence, and I mapped out a geography. This is a, a cubicle environment, and I had my cube right there. And so I kind of imagined you know, a circle that, that en- uh, encompassed a number of these cubes that were close to mine. And I started to just get the names of these people and to pray for them. And in my mind, I would just, I would wander through the, the building there, go cubicle by cubicle, and I'd pray for each of those people. That's how I did it. And one day, a woman was transferred to, from a different department to a cube right next to mine. It was the oddest thing because she didn't work with our group, but she, they put her in a cube right next to mine. So I'm taking this stuff seriously. She's in the circle of my influence. She's in the map. So I added her to my list and started to pray for her. Her name was Roz. One day, because I had, oh, this gets too long of a story to tell, but I had performed a wedding for my boss. So Roz came, comes into my cube and she says, I heard that you, perf- you officiated the wedding of Karen. Are you a real minister? And I said, yeah, I am. Oh, okay. 
And then she starts sobbing and she says, my life is coming undone. I've got to talk to somebody. I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, this is a cubicle environment. There is absolutely zero. There is no privacy whatsoever. And I, I said, look, 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 let me just pray for you, okay? Laid my hand on her and I just started to pray for her. Well, there's a little bit more to the story than that, but not long. A few days later, she came back to my cube in a better state of emotional composure. And she said, uh, so where's your church? I told her. Next Sunday, she showed up. And in that service, she gave her heart to Christ and became a follower of Jesus. Within the next few weeks, her husband and her children began to come too. After that, her best friend started to come and received Jesus in our congregation, a Taiwanese woman. Her husband, that woman's husband, began to come, receive the Lord. Within a few months after that, he had a, 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 a tragic car accident and, and was, was killed. But I, could st- I was invited to do the funeral for that guy, and I stood before those people. It was packed. The, the funeral home was packed with uh, his friends. And I told them, I, I told him, your friend Lee is with Jesus today. I could proclaim that with absolute certainty. What a joy that was. After that service, his sister came to me, or excuse me, his wife's sister, his sister-in-law came to me. And she, her name was Donna. And she said, you know, I liked what you had to say. Could I hear more about that? And so she came to our church. She was a Buddhist. She left her Buddhism behind and embraced Jesus Christ. All because I took this seriously and started praying for the people in the circle of my influence. I tell you, let God give you a paradigm shift. 